0: This is the Philosophy of Time podcast. I'm Sean Power, a philosopher. My work is primarily on time and experience. In this podcast, I'll talk about everything that relates to that, which, as it may turn out, is everything. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm holding in front of me um, a transformer toy from the 1980s. This one is called an Insecticon, and it changes from a robot into sort of stag beetle and inside its chest there's a little container that you can open up and it's got a hollow side and when i was a child and i came across this kind of toy i was really confused um i didn't understand why the chest opened up there seemed to be lots of features to it that were kind of mysterious Although the toy as I knew it was called an Insecticon and it was like a, an evil robot from a, different, from a different universe. The original toy was less a robot, and more a, a vehicle that was used by these tiny aliens, Tiny again, evil aliens. What amazed me and fascinated me were actually the photographs of the blurry, leaked, badly printed photographs of the toys inside the comic books I used to buy. 80s comic books that had nothing to do with Transformers they just advertised a toy and one of them was this Insecticon and I'd never actually seen them in the flesh the, the reason why I'm mentioning the Insecticon in particular is because it is a robot that also turns into an insect or what appears to be an insect and one way of understanding its insect form it just turns into a robot an insect form and then sticks, sits there and hides there many insects that do this themselves there are moths that when they fold up their wings a certain way they transform themselves into looking like a snake's head or like a part of a bird so the idea of a creature changing its form to look like something else is not a, a far-fetched or absurd especially on a tiny scale where it's extremely small and can be invisible but What's unusual about the Transformer in this context, or really the uh, original, um, I think they're called wa but anyway, is that uh, it's not supposed to just change into looking like an insect. It's supposed to be such a perfect reproduction that it actually behaves like an insect. So this stag beetle, I mean, or at least it turns into something that can manoeuvre itself around the place. With a driver which is the original idea of these toys. The driver rotates the vehicle into a different direction and can go on. But if it's an actual conscious alien robot, like in the Transformers toys, then when it turns into an insect, it has to be able to maneuver around the place and its head is actually hidden. It has to reorientate its senses so that it takes on, it's able to detect and see through other senses. This idea, is not simply of something pretending to be a different creature. It's actually something that changes into a different creature, like Ovid's metamorphoses, if you want. And what I find interesting about this is that, at its heart, it's a shifting of consciousness of the animal or the creature. So what I mean by this is that when this insect turns into a robot, it has its arms, the side... Okay, so I have to describe it a little bit. When it turned, when the insect's a robot, the the place where its eyes are are now actually its arm joints, literally its shoulder joints that connect its body to its arm, connects its arms to its body. So clearly, it can't see out through those joints. And where its um, abdomen was which is somewhere like all its guts and organs would have been if it was a genuine insect, are now its legs. So they're joint limbs and everything else. So it's a bit of a shift around in terms of what the robot uses the senses world when it changes form. Because if the robot was still using its shoulders to see, it would be constantly obstructed by its own arms. (laughs) See if you can picture this at all. To change from one to the other thing, it has to change its senses. And so when you try to imagine the consciousness of this creature, as shifting from one thing to another, as transforming radically, it has to radically alter its senses, shut down some senses and open up others and change its sense of its world. Okay, that's a toy. But what's interesting about this is this idea that when you transform your, your yourself from one form to another, when you change from one form to another, you radically change your sense, you have to change your senses too. We can imagine a human being transforming into a wolf, say, like a werewolf. And when they do so, their noses expand, their their legs shrink down, their eyes narrow, their the cones inside their eyes whittle down because I think dogs have fewer cones in their eyes. So they lose certain cones. And also teeth grow longer, their, their sense of taste probably changes. Also a sense of location to the ground. Um... There is a man who wrote a book recently about who is trying to explore what it's like to be different animals in this in the soil and the earth, and he, one thing he said was that he quite explicitly got down into the dirt and scrubbed around in the forest in order to see what it's like, and his sense of smell, the sense of what the world is like, including his sense of smell, changes just by changing location relative to the ground. So crouching down on all fours, this man who went through the forest, I can't remember his name, um. Uh, would have sensed the world differently just by changing his location as a human being. That's like uh, if you get into your own bedroom or into your living room and you go down onto the ground and lie down on the ground, you see things from a different angle, but you also smell and scent and feel things from a different angle. Different drafts will come through and everything else, and your sense of a room will change. But now imagine if you change yourself so much that your your nose expanded and your eyes narrowed, your sense of color and the shape of what's visible to you would change. And then as your nose expanded, your sense of what you smell would change. Your senses would radically alter in such a way that you would not um, experience the world in the same way. There's a book by Terry Pratchett. One of the main characters, Granny Weatherwax, puts her mind into a, a swarm of bees. And when she comes back, she's still suffering the effects of it. Her sense of herself, her sense of what it is to be a being is, is still dealing with the effect, after effects of being inside bees. And a sign of her brilliance as a, as, a, as a wizard or as a witch is that she can throw herself into an entire swarm of bees, not just into another animal. She can alter her consciousness and transform it by going into another creature but in her, as many witches can do. But in her case, she just directly goes into a whole hive of bees, a swarm. And the idea of, that's a common idea of witches, or of magical folk, the ability to transform themselves. Recently, I just listened to a talk by, I think her name is Daisy Johnson, who's a University of Oxford um, lecturer, researcher, professor in folklore. I joined the talk late, so I only got to see her name. And she's interested in folklore and transforming creatures like selkies and werewolves and hares, people who transform into hares, which is a classic idea of how witches do it. They transform into hares and they steal cow's milk. that They possess a hare. And in that story, in those stories, you have someone transforming themselves into another animal. But there is a question about what it means to change form. And it's a very common theme of folklore. So recently listening to Myths and Legends podcast, a young man, going to work with a troll, I think it's a Nordic, a Norwegian folk tale, and he keeps on being transformed for one year into different animals. And when he transforms into those different animals and comes back, he forgets himself in the time that he's transformed into an animal over time. The idea is that the body changes your sense of yourself, your sense of your consciousness. But what's interesting about this is, is of the different theories we have of, of consciousness and perception. Because when it comes to human consciousness, and theories of human consciousness. There's a lot of philosophers and theorists and psychologists who only work within human consciousness and, and, and theories of consciousness. They don't work in animal consciousness. They don't. They might play around in that, but they don't really talk about it because it's actually very difficult to imagine what it's like to be a different animal. And um, Daisy Johnson mentions this. And if any philosopher of mind worth his, his or her salt um, knows about this paper, this very influential, famous paper by Thomas Nagel called what is it Like to Be a Bat." Um, and the idea in what it's like to be a bat is that you can't imagine what it's like to be a bat what i want to bring up here is this idea that if you were to transform into a bat and actually become one you know like like um matt matt berry's character in what we do in the shadows you shout bat and then you become a bat in becoming a bat you're, you're no longer you you're no longer that person and you completely change and you forget yourself and that's a common part of of folklore, actually. The idea being that what makes you, what allows you to remember yourself is that you sustain yourself inside the same body. That by becoming a different physical shape, become a different mind, is that your physical consciousness radically alters your general sense of consciousness entirely. The idea that your mind or your consciousness is determined by your body has a legacy in phenomenology. Phenomenology is the study of conscious subtracted with subtracting the other commitments to your views on the world like what else exists other than consciousness so when you do phenomenology you study the immediate data of your experience you meet, you explore what it's like to see an orange or hear a piece of music but in doing so in your descriptions you're supposed to bracket off or remove all of your commitments to what's real or not so the hallucination of hearing music is treated as the same as the the hearing of music given the assumption that they are phenomenal not they are in terms of your experience of them identical and what differentiates them is that in one case there really is music and in the other case you're hallucinating music there's no music at all but the original forms from of phenomenology came a kind of embodied notion of a phenomenology from the philosopher Muriel Ponty he argues that our sense of the world our consciousness of existence is always embodied. We always are from within a certain type of body. And our sense of, our description of consciousness, our, our sense of consciousness, our sense of our, of the world and ourselves is always with our body with it. And change your body, and you change your sense of consciousness, which has huge effects on different arguments about what it means to be different kinds of bodies, and somebody with a different physical makeup, you know, things like what it's like to be a bird, what it's like to be a bat, The idea is that the consciousness of a different animal is radically different to the consciousness of us. And even if we try to imagine ourselves into the body of an animal, we can't really do it, because to do it is to radically change our senses of ourselves. Now, I've said before that one effect of that is that we stop being the physical body we are now, so we no longer know what it's like to be ourselves, that a component of what it's like to be a bat is that a bat doesn't know what it's like to be human. So to know what it's like to be a bat, you must forget yourself. You must forget your human self, at least, if you're a human, to get started. What is in the back of that is this idea that because you do not know what it's like to be a physical entity that is a bat or another body, because being that other creature requires you excluding yourself from animals, other people, they don't know what it's like to be you, it has to be excluded. They also don't know what it's like to be, you know, your kind of being. You cannot have a change between them, or at least if you do have a change between them, that's a different type of thing again, and it's a radically different type of thing. And the shapeshifter, the transformer, the the metamorphoser, has a form of existence and experience that is different again from being either a human being in a certain kind of body and... Or, a human, or an animal in a certain kind of form. To be a werewolf is neither to be a wolf nor a, nor a human being. To be someone who transforms from being a hare into a human or from a seal into a human, or back again, is neither to be the seal nor the human. Because, in this rule, a human being is someone who has a very specific physical form. And a seal is a creature or someone maybe as well, who has a very specific physical form. A wolf is a creature that has a very specific physical form. A hare is a creature that's a very specific physical form. And uh, a bat is a creature that' has a very specific physical a very specific physical form. And a robot is a creature that has a very specific physical form. And all of them, because of those physical forms, have a very particular consciousness attached to them. and that consciousness, cannot transfer between the different physical forms you cannot be a robot and an insect and a wolf and a seal and there's no consciousness to being something that's a conjunction of all these that to there's no consciousness that is to be a bat and a human even if you can transform between the different physical forms you are not one or the other you cannot be one or the other i guess it's biological determinism or it's or physical form determinism your physical nature means you are your kind of consciousness and not only that but your consciousness is exhausted by it and it's impossible to be that consciousness and then change physical form and continue to be that consciousness so what well first of all it means that no transformer could actually be both an insect and a robot it also means that if you, meet, if you meet a selkie, or you meet a wizard, or a witch, they have become inhuman. They've stopped being human. They have dropped out of their, their preferred their form. By learning how to, or by being born that way, being able to transform from one physical form to another, they have removed themselves from being either. And what this requires is several things. First of all, it requires actually that the physical form in the moment is not what it means to be that creature. So, what is it like to be a bat? Part of what it's like to be a bat, what it's like to be conscious as a bat, and we're only talking about consciousness here, but we can also talk about the physical form. It's not just to be that physical form, but it's to have the history of a bat built into you. Bats are born in, in tiny roosting caves, nurtured by their parents, and learning to fly and then they fly out the out the window and then they're away now if you transform into a bat do like a vampire does so and just go become a bat and then fly away they don't really know what it's like to be a bat in terms of having to learn to fly and because they have the experience of learning how to fly with their parents who are also bats with their mother and parents then they're not really bats at all now you'll find that this gets really difficult and falls over a lot if you start demanding you give specific rules and talk about wolves When a werewolf turns into a wolf, they do not really turn into a wolf because what it means to be a wolf is you don't spend any of your history as a human. You don't spend any of your past as a human or any time in your life as a human. To be a wolf is not just to physically look like a wolf, it's to actually have a history of being a wolf. And then what happens is someone goes, and that means that you're either an alpha or beta male amongst the wolf pack and all this kind of stuff. And you start telling a story about what it means to be a wolf. And so when you meet a a being that comes along and says, I'm a wolf, and you say you're not really a wolf and the reason why you're not really a wolf is because you've never you've never competed for attention or for your place in the pack what has happened here is you've actually gone wrong because there then you're actually turns out there are no wolves because alpha wolf beta wolf and all that stuff of wolf packs is a mistake it's a misunderstanding of the behavior of wolves in zoos this brings up an idea in philosophy often called the no true scotsman monarchy. Irish, so I'm going to use a no true Irish man argument instead. All Irishmen love drinking above all other things. Sean is an Irishman. Therefore, Sean loves drinking above all other things. This is a classic syllogistic argument of the same class as all humans are mortal. Socrates is a human. Socrates is mortal. However, in this no true Scotsman story, or no true Irishman story, one response is I don't love drinking above all things, but I am an Irishman. Well, you're not a true Irishman. You're illegitimate in some way. In fact, what's actually happened is there's a counterexample to the argument that all Irishmen love drinking above all things, which is that there's one Irishman who doesn't love drinking above all things, Sean. There's actually plenty more. About and as a result, all Irishmen love drinking above all things is false. And putting the word true in front of all true Irishmen love drinking above all things, Sean is not a true Irishman, is false as well. Because I am a true Irishman, you meet someone who's a wolf, and you argue that all wolves form alpha-beta-type packs. Now we have Michael, who's the wolf. And Michael's a wolf, growing up in the wild, who hangs around, and you argue, well, Michael's not a real wolf, not a true wolf, because Michael doesn't actually take part in the alpha pack stuff. That doesn't work, because actually it turns out that Michael is actually a counterexample to your theory of alpha wolves. Which is exactly what happened in real life. When they looked at packs, they found that the dominant members of the pack are usually the parents, family, and there was more of a family unit in the packs' relationship. And a lot of ideas of what it means to be a wolf is completely false. An easy response to this, and one I think, most people who are sceptical of, say, werewolves being wolves and people, you just have to get the right story about wolves right. Okay, alpha wolf thinking about wolves, These are wrong theories. These are wrong descriptions of these creatures. But once you get the right history going, get the right evolutionary history, you're fine. You look at that, you've got your concept of what it is to be a wolf. It's not some sort of concept that you brought into the story, but it's actually arising out of proper empirical research and examination of wolf-like creatures. And then you look at human beings and you see that even the ones that turn into wolves don't resemble that wolf that you've examined. It just doesn't have those properties. It doesn't it isn't brought up by other wolves, it isn't, you know, it has none of the things that make wolves wolves. But like I said, that can get problematic. You might encounter in the natural world creatures that are humans at one stage and wolves at others. I haven't seen this as much with werewolf folklore, but I have seen it with selkie folklore. Selkies are like werewolves, but they're more wear seals They transform into seals and then they take off their seal skin and turn into humans. They're common in the folklore of Ireland and particularly the folklore of Scotland, which has a folklore creatures that are different in important ways. For example the water horse or the kelpie. These creatures, animals or seals, they can turn into humans. And in a world where such creatures might exist, you might end up with a story of which says there are many different kinds of humans, including ones that can turn into seals including witches and including wizards. And because there are such creatures, the idea of a human being that cannot transform itself physically into another physical body that more resembles every common day wolves or more resembles what we commonly understand as being seals, this is a mistake. There are certainly creatures like that. There are certainly people like that. There are people that can turn into creatures that look identical to what we identify as seals, or what we identify as wolves, or we identify as bats. And they're people, and they're persons, and they're humans. But if we grant that to types of humans, we can say there are types of wolves, or there are types of bats, or there are types of seals that also can transform into human-like creatures. We open up the possibility that there are actual creatures that transform between them. There's a type of horse that can run along on the land and then sometime can turn into a sea creature. This is what a kelpie is, a horrific sea creature at that. Although someone might say, well they're not a real horse, you have to be careful. In certain kinds of conversations saying they're not a real horse can be legitimate because what we mean by a real horse is an animal that we can can tame and that eats grass, that it doesn't eat human beings and doesn't have pliant flesh that if you touch it your hands sink in which is what a kelpie does, and doesn't try to kill you and eat you in the in the river or the sea. That's not a real horse. But for horses, if they could speak, might very well argue, well no, these are types of horses. They're just not the types of horses that satisfy the conditions of your view of a horse. They are not suiting human needs from a human conventional way of thinking about animals. But that's because you've got horses wrong. In this world, it may be that we get a lot of the animals wrong. And we get a lot of people wrong. Lots and lots of people can turn into other creatures and lots of other creatures can turn into other people and other creatures again. And what we get wrong is the idea that these difference between these creatures is fixed and frozen. The idea that we get that wrong shouldn't really surprise anybody with any religious upbringing mixed with a scientific upbringing. If you believe that evolution is true and you also know your catechism, you know your history of the Bible, say, or your creation myths, but you still believe evolution is true, natural evolution to be exact, natural selection. Then you know that there's a story about how creatures are distinct from each other that is false. This is the Noah's Ark, the creationism view of the world being 6,000 years old and the view of all animals being created at one moment in time in the past when Adam named them all. And after that, all the creatures they were created separate and they remain separate. This view has been heavily undermined and seen as false in many different situations where it arises. Never mind with animals, you get it with gender, you get it with sex, you get it with race. It's so problematic as a basic view that to start with, it seems naive. It might be true. And at some point, I think categorically, at some point, down on the physical level of things, down on the atomic level of things, we need it to be true just to think clearly about how things interact with each other. We have to have electrons that are distinct from protons and neutrons. But electrons, protons and neutrons, none of them is a particular human race or a particular type of animal. When you get to the animal level, this is significantly undermined. A taxonomy, a a distinct way of separating different living organisms from each other is a temporary and unstable way of distinguishing them. The idea that you say a horse is a horse, of course, that it's a horse because it's distinct from other creatures by having certain properties and a certain history. In a world where creatures can actually change into each other this way, the idea of what makes a horse no longer applies, that it's it's distinct because it has a certain body type. In fact, you might struggle to fully identify creatures from each other. And actually, what then allows you to pick out, say, a hare from a horse, from a seal, from a wolf, from a human, from a bat, is their physical structure at a certain moment in time. What makes a human in this story is their physical structure in this moment. That they have hair, that they have skin, that they don't have hair all over their bodies, that they're upright, that they have good eyesight but bad senses of smell, and that other creatures are distinguished from them because they have similar properties. But if those are the properties that distinguish a human being from a wolf, from a horse, from a seal, then a a being that can transform from a human being into a wolf, into a creature that can hunt and smell and can see in the dark and can howl and can run with the pack, it is now a creature that is a wolf when it transforms into a wolf and is a human when it transforms into a human. And so we can have a situation in that story where a certain creature can very well be a human and then become a wolf and vice and come back. There are two ways left, I think, to object to this. One is physical and one is psychological. Now, I started by saying there's this physical, biological determinism of consciousness. What I'm actually saying here is, is one difference is an argument for the reason why a human being cannot become a wolf and a wolf cannot become a human being is physical. I've always said that if they change to become physically identical, then that no longer really applies. But you might argue that it's impossible for a human being to transform into a wolf. But if that's the case, then the conversation's over. And that is probably what's happening in the actual physical world. There might also be a second argument that I think is worth mentioning in in passing, which is an argument from language. So Saul Kripke argues that our concept of a unicorn has a causal history Leading back to some place where the idea of a unicorn arose, and people, as it were baptized, some entity in a certain scenario as unicorn, and as a result, the language the way language transfers means that when people refer to a unicorn, they ultimately refer all the way back to that original usage of the word unicorn, and it can be a very complex scenario. People can begin using the word unicorn in a certain way, and then adapted and used in another context and then eventually using a third context which mixes up the first two to get this complex idea of a horse but that's also got a horn you can imagine a situation where people encountered a certain kind of horse in the, in Asia I think the and also encountered a rhinoceros and mixed them up with each other and thus came away with the idea that far away there are these creatures with medicinal properties from their horns that are horses and they are unicorns but it doesn't matter because what arises eventually when the language gets transferred from that and carries on over time, there's this causal history of people teaching each other the word, describing, offering descriptions of the creature, it evolving and changing. When we now use the word unicorn, we have that causal history behind us. And as Kripke says, if we suddenly dug up in some faraway land and found the remains of an actual unicorn with all its physical properties, if that fossil was discovered, it had no connection to the history of our use of the word That wouldn't be a unicorn, as we understand and use the meaning, because of that causal history. Very similarly, when we talk about wolves, there might be a similar story. But although that language argument does work for making sense of how we might discover a species unknown completely in some far off land or even an alien planet, where there are creatures that can transform into what almost look physically identical to human beings and transform into what almost physically identical resemble wolves, they would not be werewolves, and they would not be wolves or humans. Because our concept of a werewolf, a human and a wolf comes from our causal history. At some point somebody started referring to wolves, taught to other people, which carried on into the modern day. And that's what we mean by wolf, and similarly with the idea of a human, and of course with the idea of a werewolf. You know, it's interesting when you look at the concept of a werewolf as we use it now, let's say in Twilight, or in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or in American Werewolf in London, and then you go all the way back into the history of the concept of a werewolf. You find that werewolves in the, say, 11th century are, this. I got this from Daisy Johnson's talk that I mentioned earlier, are kind of pretty chill. They're pretty relaxed creatures and they don't seem to have anything to do with vicious blood-sucking monsters that will bite you in repute to shreds. But they are part of the history. So you can say things like, originally werewolves were not actually killers and then they just get transformed in our concept of them. But if we came across a werewolf, that had nothing to do with our causal history. However, if we came across the remains of creatures in an area where the mythology of werewolves arose, and we found them and they actually had bodies that made them seem to be human-like and also wolf-like, we might say that they are part of our causal history because they might be the origin of the notion of a werewolf. Why I'm bringing up this language case as an aside rather than a, a separate argument against saying that a human being can turn into another creature or another creature can turn into another creature is because it doesn't really sort between them. If we lived in a world where there were werewolves and selkies and hair, witches and wizards and warlocks and so on, then we would have a very different causal story about how we came up with these words. We would have come up with the word werewolf because we would have had werewolves in the past and part of that causal history could be that we mistakenly identified cases in which humans turned into wolves or wolves turned into humans that were completely possible for those types of animals and we thought they were special and they were unique and particular and separate to everybody else and everything else and so we thought they were a different species but in fact they were wolves and humans faced with seeing a human being suddenly turn into or something that seems identical physically to a wolf and we ask are you the same person you were before you were a wolf and are you a wolf one answer to this that someone's consciousness cannot survive the transformation is because although the physical body did turn into something we might call a wolf the person didn't survive the wolf has replaced the person that's the ceasing of one consciousness at the beginning of another is we need a psychological question. Can you survive that transformation? Can you be the same person from one moment as a human to the next moment as a wolf? From one moment as a vampire to the next moment as a bat? And there's one idea that might still undermine that answer. It's a psychological answer to do with consciousness, and it's this. Human beings have a particular aspect to their consciousness that other creatures do not have, and that aspect is the way they experience time. When I was lecturing several years ago, I had a student who used to work for the fisheries board. I was discussing our moral obligations towards other creatures, how we ought to treat them, in this case, fish. And he argued that fish don't really suffer the way human beings suffer because they have no sense of the future, no sense of the past. They only have present experience. And so their suffering can only be present. As evidence for this, he told me a few stories about the fish he used to stock Irish lakes with for tourists and about how some of them just didn't seem to suffer from experience. Let's assume for the moment that this view is right. Fish don't suffer, although they can experience pain. Why is that? And why is it that human beings can suffer? It is about time. In the Norwegian folklore tale from Myths and Legends podcast, The young man who gets turned into an animal by the troll forgets himself in the moment of becoming an animal. It's only when he becomes a human again, he goes, oh, I was once a human. But another way of looking at it is that he might simply have physically been transformed and then disappeared as a person. The person ceased to exist. Now, sometimes we talk about ourselves as not being aware of ourselves and yet continuing to exist. A normal, everyday idea. If we believed otherwise, if we believed we always had to be aware of ourselves in order to exist, we would be in a situation of ceasing to exist when we fall asleep. Deep, dreamless sleep would be a state of non-existence. We would come into existence and then we'd go out of existence every time we go to sleep at night. So the idea that we cease to exist because we're not aware of ourselves isn't the idea here. The idea is more that this young man transforming into an animal doesn't fall asleep in some special deeper metaphysical way he ceases to exist why is that is that he changes completely as a physical being and then also there's an animal consciousness there and that animal consciousness does not think of itself as that young man it does not have a notion of itself as being identical to that, that young man I can have a toothache and I can also enjoy the taste of chocolate, and those experiences are present They're in the moment, and they are examples of pleasure and of pain in the moment. In addition to having pain in the present, I can experience suffering. And suffering is different than just pain in the present. It is an experience also of the future and of the past. It's not just feeling a toothache that might go on for hours and hours and hours, just the present pain repeated over and over again. No, it's the present pain would include a sense that it's going to continue. That the pain you're feeling now, you also have a sense of the future, of it continuing into the future. Or have a sense of it having gone on for some time, of it being in the past. Let's say there's a temporal dimension to the pain, of it lasting beyond this moment of your experience, your immediate perception, lasting into the future lasting longer than where you, when you are now. So, the idea is that because animals only have present experience, or only experience things that are happening presently, they don't have suffering. A wolf might have a toothache, but a wolf, in having a toothache, won't be thinking, or won't be experiencing a sense that the toothache will go on for longer than this. They won't be wondering when will it end, or even they won't be experiencing a sense that there will be a time in the future when it will end, and hoping for it, or they won't be thinking about a time when it will continue just like this, that there is all of a future time for it to continue feeling pain. And also, given this idea of animals only being present and not really being in time, they don't experience the past. They don't have a sense that the pain has been going on for a while. Instead, all they have is the present pain. This is what marks them out, psychologically, consciously, in terms of their own self-awareness. Animals have no sense of themselves at other times. They only have a sense of themselves now. An animal in pain doesn't believe it's going to end. An animal in pain doesn't believe that it has already happened. Neither do they have an experience of both those things. But human beings do. A human being might fall asleep and wake up again and think, I have had this pain in my chest for days now. Or they might say, this toothache that started, is it going to go away soon? Or in my case, often enough, this backache, will this backache continue? In this story, this is what distinguishes humans and animals. I keep saying this is a story because there is an open question about whether or not this is a genuine difference between humans and animals. The idea that human beings do have experiences like this is part of what philosophers who think about human time consciousness think is special about the self, about the human being, or at least about the self. Heidegger talks about Dasein, a form of consciousness, a form of selfhood that distinguishes you from just being an object or being a thing in the world. You are something that's related to the world, and you're something that the world is for, And a fundamental component to that sign is your being towards your death. You have a horizon in your future, that is, your extinction, your ceasing to exist, your death. And that informs everything else about your consciousness, according to Heidegger. It informs everything about your consciousness in a way that your sense of your past, of your birth, does not. The sense of having once not existed doesn't have the same force as the sense that you will, sometime, cease to exist. This difference is important and it drives an awful lot of both the psychological research, the philosophical research, the phenomenological research, the metaphysics, about how human beings distinguish the past, the future and the present, in other words how human beings think about time. But the idea here is that animals don't have this. Animals don't have a that sign. They don't have a sense of a future where they will cease to exist. Even though this is true for an animal like a wolf or a bat in our world. It isn't true, say, of gods but it's true of animals along with human beings. There's a point where something we might identify as a rabbit or as a wolf will cease to exist. It will die. So here is an argument for why we do not continue or persist as a person when we transform from a human body into the body, into the form of... That's a, that looks like a wolf in a moment of time. or looks like a rabbit or a hare, it looks like a bat or a seal. Why we don't persist as persons, why we don't exist as persons is because in becoming a wolf, we lose our time consciousness. We lose our our sense of our own death. We lose our sense of the past. We lose our capacity to suffer. This is what it is to cease to exist. Alternatively, given this fictional world we're creating, we could imagine a creature that transforms into an animal but keeps their sense of time. A person transforms into a wolf. They are reflective and say wolves are not reflective. They run with the pack alright, but they're more watchful about what's going on because they no sh- know that as they run across the side of a cliff they can die by falling off the cliff. They have a more varied and rich sense of their own extinction, their own, dis- their own death. It's not merely instinct that makes them avoid dangers. It's A sense of how they themselves might relate to those dangers, um, including the dangers to killing them. As I say this I immediately find myself struggling with the idea that animals don't have, you might call it death consciousness, a sense of their own death, or the possibility of their own death. Maybe they don't believe it, but then again lots of religions don't believe it either. Lots of people don't believe it. Lots of people believe that when they die they simply change form. They go to sleep for a while in Christian religion and are reborn in new bodies. Or they simply transform into other energies, they reincarnate. So, that doesn't really distinguish human beings from other animals, that people don't believe they're going to die. But what maybe is, is the sense of the end of your own sense of your own body is this fundamental component of being a human being, at least for a long time, your particular body. This story we're telling seems to be a story about human beings that are not religious, that we aren't distinguishing between animals and human beings, we're distinguishing between atheists and animals. Religious, but they don't have a sense of being towards their own death because they believe they will exist forever. They believe they are a sempiternal, which is a term used to describe humans and other created beings that have no end, that have no destruction that the human soul comes into existence, is brought into existence in a theistic religion by God, and just like angels are also brought into existence, but they never cease to exist. They have only one boundary in time. And the idea here is that animals don't think that way. In fact, animals are more like plastic bags or a rock, or the air. They have no sense of themselves in time. So this story goes. And if that's right about animals, then Yes, religious people and atheists, both in becoming an animal, in becoming a wolf, in becoming a seal, they cease to become aware of themselves, at least. They become a creature that does not say, I was a human. Instead, they become a creature that says, I am. They cease to say anything other than something about their presentness. They don't think, tomorrow I will have cake, or in 10 minutes I will have rabbit. They just think, I am. I am hungry. I am angry, I am afraid, I am happy, I desire something, I don't think I have it, and I will, will not have it. So like I said, this is a view of animal consciousness that I'm not sure I subscribe to, but it's still a view that a lot of people advance. In fact, I've met philosophers, philosophers of time, who talk about their pets and animals this way. And like I said, if this is correct, this is why you cannot change into a creature, another creature like an animal, and persist in being a human being. You cease to exist. Of course you can change back. And most stories will represent then what happens, at least the stories about werewolves, as being that the human being, afterwards, doesn't remember what they did as an animal. It was like sleep for them. That also raises the problem, though, the idea to the idea that you cease to exist. You stop being human. Because humans stop being aware of themselves and their sense of death constantly. And the limitations of themselves constantly. They are constantly aware of that while they're awake. But as soon as they fall asleep, they cease to be aware. So, it might be as reasonable for a human being to change into a wolf or a bat or a seal as it is for a human being to fall asleep. Again, psychologically, in terms of time consciousness. Falling asleep is going into a state of mind similar to an animal state. You go into a state in which you're not aware of the past or the future. You have a similar time consciousness as an animal does. When you're sleeping, even in your dream state, you don't have a sense of your death or at least you can have a dream state where you don't have a sense of your own death a way of experiencing the world that is not like a religious person who doesn't have a sense of their own death because they think they will live forever they still have a sense of the future a sense of time but more like you don't have any sense of time i have had an experience something like this once i was very sick and I was given some sleeping pills to help me sleep. And I woke up in the middle of the night under their effect. And for a brief moment, I lay there. And I remember just feeling like I was in this moment. I had no sense of the future or the past. But when I think back it now, I think that's not actually right. It isn't that I had no sense of the future in the past. I just had a sense that the future in the past didn't matter. This is not the same. What we're trying to actually have here when we're trying to think about this animal consciousness that human beings go into when they become wolves and such creatures, when they transform in this fantastical way, is we're trying to enter in a state of mind that isn't like being indifferent to the future or indifferent to the past. Sort of freedom, a sense of the past and future being things that are not threatening or not oppressive. The sort of thing that David Bowie sings about in Fill Your Heart. Or the sense of experience that comes from being mindful, being able to let go of thoughts about the future and the past, being able to separate oneself from it, or simply the state of being happy and accepting that you exist in this moment. But that sense of time consciousness, no matter how hard it is to achieve or how enlightened it is to have that state of mind, the state of mind I will admit I have never achieved, it is not a state of mind of being an animal in this idea. No, when we talk about this sense of time consciousness for an animal where it just feels the present experience, it feels presently what's happening and has no sense of the future and no sense of the past. This idea is something almost impossible for us to imagine. We all find ourselves in time. We even, I think, find ourselves in dreams in time. Not that when I dream that I'm sitting in a coffee shop I've never been in before, and watching as I look outside the window, strange creatures moving by are strange colours to the sky. I don't have a sense of the history behind that. It is not that I'm thinking or aware of the history that brought me there, nor of the history of the world, the world I'm part of, as if there's some story being written where I've done this bit of world building. It is not a part of dreams that they involve world building, just a part of dreams that you have a sense of being in a moment, but there's still a sense of being in time. What this is, is a diminished state. You have to cut away any sense of the past and the future. The present is all you're aware of. And it's not that it's a focus, it's not that it's a bright light against a dark background of other times. It is more that there is only the present. There's only a conscious awareness of a present moment with no sense whatsoever of the future and of the past. This is what we have to think about when we think about the consciousness of animals, when we talk about animals not having suffering and only capable of feeling pain, that an animal's time consciousness does not extend beyond this moment. In The View from Nowhere, Nagel argues that there are different perspectives we take on the world, the certain states of mind or points of view we think about. And one thing we do is each human being experiences the world from a specific point of view. I have my point of view in the world and you have yours. But we also take a stance or have an attitude towards the world which we often think of as the objective stance. Within our own experience or our own thinking about the world, there is the thinking about the world where we say quite self-consciously, this view I have is due to my point of view. The difference between you standing at the bottom of a mountain, looking up at the top of the mountain and then getting to the very top and looking back down again, your point of view has changed. You're also aware that your point of view has changed. We have built into some of our thinking about the world, the sense of our own point of view being, being different. But then we also carry around a sense of the world which we don't take as being, as being different from other people. This sense of the world is of the world as it really is, that if other people saw it properly, they would see it the same way. It's just a sense of the world. This sense of the world is of the world as it is for everybody, that no difference for anybody, that no matter where you stand, how you think, how you feel, how you are, this is how the world is. And if it seems different to you, that's an error on your part. Like, for example, if the world how it really is, Includes nothing supernatural and nothing mystical. It contains only the physical things in the world. You may believe that there is a supernatural thing in the world, but if the world really doesn't have them, that's just how the way the world is. And the people who believe there are supernatural things in the world are mistaken. This viewpoint, you may call it an objective viewpoint, it's separate from any person's particular subjective point of view. It's not dependent on it. Beliefs in it, of course, depend on people. Good beliefs depend on their being a believer. But it's that the thing that's believed in is that way, regardless of a point of view. It's purely objective. And Nagel says that when we think about this, we take a stance that he calls a view from nowhere. We take a stance about the way the world is that comes from, has no particular perspective. The idea is that this perspective is often seen as a God's eye view too. It's a perspective that God has of the world. However, even if it got all of the facts that we all agree on correct, what it leaves out is actually our particular perspective. And what it definitely leaves out is the limitations of each of our perspectives. This is where the what it's like to be a bat has a lot of force, or what it's like to be human, or what it's like to be a wolf. The points of view of these creatures and of us are limited. Just as standing on top of a mountain, we don't know. We don't see the world from the perspective of the bottom of the mountain and vice versa. So looking at a bat, we don't see the world from the perspective of the bat. And part of that is that the bat's own experience of the world is limited. It doesn't have our states of mind. It doesn't have our sense of time, is this idea. We don't know what it's like to be a creature, an animal, a non-human, because we don't know what it's like to lack a sense of time. Again, I have tried to give examples where we might think we do, like waking up in the middle of a dream or being wake up in the middle of the night with no troubles. But these states, there's still a sense of the past and the future. In fact, we find it impossible to think what it's like to only experience the present. It might help to try and grasp this idea to think about something that the psychologist Richard Gregory talked about with his students, his seeing students, students with sight. One of them asked him in a class, what is it like? What's the experience like for people who can't see? Especially people whose eyes work, but they are born congenitally blind because they cannot actually, you know, the vision system doesn't work. And Gregory argued, asked them, and Gregory responded by saying, well, what is it like to see out the back of your head? It's like that. What is it like to, ex- to not have an experience of the future or the past? We might similarly say, I cannot actually answer that. But what I might ask you is, what is it like to experience a thousand years or ten thousand years? What is it like to experience a million years? Or what is it like to experience the difference between one microsecond and the next? The answer is, you don't know. There's no experience that it's like. So that might help you at least get towards the idea of what it's like to experience time, or experience only the present, and not the future, and not the past. But it's a bit of a cheat, because what you're really saying is, I don't know what it's like to experience it. There's no sense to the question. There's nothing it's like to experience, and that's what you must think. So, what does this say about the ability for a human being to turn into an animal, but not be that animal? Well, we might answer that animals cannot have time consciousness. Because they cannot have time consciousness, human beings cannot become them and persist as people. A person cannot become an animal, and continue as a person. The analogy is to ask, what is it like to be a tree? Or what is it like to be a rock, a plastic bag? These things may have some kind of experience, some kind of consciousness, but it is almost impossible for us to imagine. We especially cannot imagine it, if a condition of it is that we don't have time consciousness involved. For example, I might try to imagine what it's like to be a tree, by imagining myself myself, spending a hundred years experiencing it in a few hours. I might imagine what it's like to be a plastic bag by imagining myself moving through the air, being blown this way and that by the wind. And in doing so, I have a sense of change and of motion. And similar with the tree, I have a sense of the change and growing of my limbs. But this requires time consciousness. So we have to remove that. We have to remove the sense of time. In a previous episode, I talked about the experience of a tree over a thousand years, or the experience of a mountain over a thousand years. And it sounds playful, but what I'm taking out of that is the idea that there could be experiences like that. But to we have to bring in time consciousness to think about that. Otherwise, there's nothing there to experience at all. So whether you're a transformer robot that turns into an insect and changes all of your senses, or whether you're a human being that transforms into a wolf, or of seal or a bat, you're still asking when you say you exist and when you tra- continue to persist, when you stay like that, when you are a selkie or a werewolf, you are requiring that you have time consciousness in the life and the mind of that wolf or seal or bat. It seems unavoidable. Even if it's a dream state, you're giving time consciousness, you're demanding time consciousness of the animal. And that may be why you cannot fully be that animal. But then again, maybe animals do have a sense of time. I don't know. Has anybody really examined that question rather than just assuming it? Like I said, what it's like to be a bat, one reason why it's a challenge is because we don't know what it's like to be in that state of ignorance that a bat has. We imagine ourselves as being that bat, but we carry over all our sense of knowledge and memories and so on. But in doing so, in a general way, We are constantly assuming that we would have all the knowledge and thoughts that we have here, but just we'd be like a bat flying around, experiencing the world with different senses. This is not what it's like to be a bat, though. And all of us actually live with an attachment, a psychological and conscious attachment to a being, to something or someone that is like that as well. For all of us, have at some point in the past been children, ourselves at a different time, at an earlier time, in many cases has no idea what it's like to be us.